of us, let's grab our Bibles with enthusiasm, with purpose this morning. This is the Word of God. He's able to use it to accomplish incredible things. It never returns void. What a wonderful thought. He sends His Word forth and it's always at work in our lives. And my prayer is always this morning is that we would we'd have receptive hearts, the soil of our heart would allow His Word to go deep and do what He desires to do. So let's pray and then let's launch into things this morning. Father, just thank You. Thank You for this moment in human history. Regardless of what headlines say, regardless of the, uh, the postulating and posturing of, of nations and of people around the world, Lord, You are at work. Your kingdom is advancing. It is an everlasting kingdom. And I thank you that we get to be a part of and proclaim as you taught us to proclaim, let your kingdom come. Let it be done. That's our desire and our delight to see your kingdom come, to see people saved and set free and healed and delivered, to see your name, King Jesus, made great. It's the longing of our heart. Come, Holy Spirit. As the, uh, the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 5, Look on the, the stuff that's happening around us and fill us with boldness to proclaim your gospel, the great news of who you are and what you've done. And even this morning, would your good news, would it uh, resonate in our hearts? Would you do what you desire to do amongst us, your people? We're here, we're ready. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Romans 11, if you've been following along, we're working our way through this particular letter, this particular uh, letter that Paul writes to the Roman church. And this is a, an interesting section in the book. I'll set it up perhaps in this way for those who haven't been around. But we had a, a birthday in our household this week. We had a, the eldest of our children turn 15. Now, it might not seem like much, but it's funny how certain periods in the journey of, of being uh, a father, they kind of stick out more than some others, and perhaps I've been in denial about still having little kids, I still call them my little girls, much to their frustration, Dad, we're not little, we are not little anymore, you've got to stop calling us little, we're big, but there's, there's something about that transition, isn't there, 15, 16, I've been thinking back to my, old, my personal journey only a few years ago from... Uh, from boy to man, that 15 to 16, only a few years, I won't reveal how many, 15, 16, there's something about that age, isn't it? It's like a coming of age, that's what I remember, I remember very fondly of that period, no more, you know, the little boy, but the, the young man who glories, as scripture says, in his strength and loves to kind of push back on the boundaries, and I think the other thing that I love about this particular age is let's call it this uncomplicated simplicity, this youthful exuberance, perhaps bordering at times on arrogance, some would say. But remember my, my mother, I think it was, bought me a badge when I was around about that age, 15 to 16, and the badge said this. It said, hire a teenager while they still know everything. <laughs> and there is kind of this sense, isn't there? It, you, you, you know how life works. I've got it all figured out. And there's part of that that I love. I love being around young people and my own children, particularly for that sense of 
youthful exuberance, for uncomplicated simplicity. And oftentimes, as I reflect back just a few years ago when I was that similar age, there's part of that that is good and wonderful and helpful. And it's not always that it's wrong. Sometimes it's right. It's just not quite the complete picture. As I keep reassuring my children, I'm like, well, you know, I I have some wisdom to perhaps bring into this situation that could give you another perspective. At times, it's a response along the lines of, well, Dad, you don't know anything. Any parent ever had that one? Other times, they're willing to listen. But there is value, isn't there, in runs on the board, in the experience that comes from doing life. And Paul is writing this letter as someone he, he'd been there. He was on this path. He, was, uh, he believed on, on a godly path, persecuting Christians because they were the, the scum of the, the earth that needed to be removed. And God, of course, grabbed a hold of him and he went a completely different direction. And he's been around at this point for some decades, preaching the gospel, establishing churches in the ways of Christ. And so this is the moment in the book of Romans where up until chapter 9, at the end of chapter 8, he's proclaimed the gospel. He's focused us in on this incredible reality of the proclamation of good news. That's what it is. It is good news that Jesus saves, that he's come to make a way. Where there was no way, he's brought us out of darkness into his glory. He's proclaimed the gospel. He's talked about what it means for us. And then this little portion of the book of Romans, 9, 10, and 11, he takes his detour, and really it is at its essence, the desire of his heart is to put that gospel within the broader storyline of God's working in human history, of the soteriological storyline, we could say, of his unfolding plan. And I should say this little disclaimer as we begin, I promised as we begun this series in Romans that we would not delve too deeply theological, not because that's a bad thing, it's a, it's a wonderful thing um, to do and to delve, and you can read commentaries about the commentaries about the commentaries when it comes to this book. There's, there's no limits to the depths we can mine, but I'm also aware that not all of us would enjoy feeling like we were at a theological college every single time we came on a Sunday. So we've tried to kind of grab the main points with this one desire in our hearts And that's to examine a theology that leads us to a doxology. It's where we began, that all of this understanding of how God works would lead us to a place of worship, of worship and wonder, of seeing Him in a new light and with a greater sense of who He is and what He is accomplishing. But I say that for this reason, is we do need to delve into a little bit of theology this morning. I'm sorry if it feels a bit like we're in seminary. It's not my intention, but it's necessary to cover this particular text for those who think, goodness gracious, this is a bit intense and full on. The good news is from next week onwards, from the next chapter onwards in the book of Romans, is very practical. We move on from theology, we're right into the practicality of what does that actually mean, what does it mean in our lives and in the life of the church. So are we ready to go? With those disclaimers, with that in mind, remembering Paul's talked in Romans 9, in this bigger picture, he's talking about the sovereignty of God's plan, that his plan outworked through his covenantal faithfulness, through the promises that he has given to his people. 
He centers us in chapter 10, moving on from this sovereignty, looking at the sufficiency of the gospel. Paul is saying, so this is my desire, my delight. It's to be a part of, of proclaiming this good news, even though people are not listening. That's my mission for two reasons. Number one, because only the gospel can save. There is no other, there's no other message. There's no other, there's no other means. This is not one of five good options. This is it. I've discovered the gospel is it. He was on a different path. He's like, no, this, this is the message of salvation. It's why it needs to be proclaimed. And the second one is not only the power of the gospel, but the passion of the gospel. And he ends, again, at the end of chapter 10. He says, but of Israel, this is verse 21, all day long I, being God, have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And he's effectively saying, this is what I've discovered. There's a God of mercy. And this is the beating passion of his heart. He came and he died to make a way. And that's his mission that I get to be a part of. It's not just theology, but it's the beating heart of an eternal God who loves his people and loves nothing more than see sinners come to the salvation that he offers, to see prodigals who are far away come and embraced by the eternal love. That's what they were created for. It's what each of us was created to know. So let's launch into Romans 11, and we're going to bring through these themes, try and follow along. If you've got your Bible, we'll test the guys on the back there, see if they can keep up as well. So Paul says this, Romans 11, chapter 1, I ask then, remembering he's asking these questions as we go through, has God rejected his people? And this, this has been, if you like, the parameters behind his exploration of the eternal plans of God. It's been, well, what, is it, what does it look like now with this gospel? How does it relate to both, if you like, the Old Testament, to God's promises to Abraham? How does that then fit in as well with this, what we call the new covenant, with this this age and this era of grace. He's, he's wrestling and he's reconciling. First question in nine, he said, has, has God failed in his promises? We've clarified that. Nope. He, he's not failed in his promises. We've upheld the, the centrality, sufficiency of the, the gospel in number 10. But his question now is, has God rejected his people? He's been faithful to his promises, but has he decided that's it for Israel? Israel's gone. This is a new day. It's a new era. We're heading down a new path. His answer straight away is, by no means. As God rejected his people, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Has anyone ever felt like that? Lord, I'm all alone. Woe is me, there's nobody else righteous. I'm in the midst of a wicked people. But what is God's reply to him? Verse 4, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So the first question, has God rejected his people? There's going to be two answers. His first answer is no, because there is a remnant. And Paul is saying, I'm one of those remnants. I am a Jewish man. I'm proud of my Jewish heritage, and I've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God hasn't rejected his people. In fact, he's called some people like me. And remember Paul's calling. It was a sovereign calling. He literally got knocked off his high horse. He had his eyes blinded and then opened to the reality of who Christ was. Jesus himself spoke to him. So it's like God has preserved a remnant. 
And he uses Elijah as an example and saying, in fact, throughout history, we see this pattern. There's, there's never been a time, even despite the, the wickedness of God's people, where he hasn't preserved a remnant through the midst of what was going on around. And at times, that is how God's plan unfolds and how it works. That's his first answer. God has not rejected his people. I'm an Israelite. I am a, of Jewish descent, and I believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So... I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, here comes the second answer, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass, verse 12, means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, has God rejected Israel? Well, no, because he's preserved a remnant. And the second thing is, even though there has been a nation that en masse, apart from this remnant, that has rejected the, the promise and the calling of God into his work of grace through Christ Jesus, this has been something, not as an afterthought, that God has used to bring salvation to the Gentiles. This was his very method and means for the gospel to be spread to the ends of the earth. You and I should be very thankful about that. We're here because of this part of God's sovereign plan. Now, there's a couple of things that are encouraging, I find, in this reality. Number one is that God's plans are not hindered by our mistakes. That nothing is beyond His capacity to outwork His sovereign purposes. How often do we think personally, just applying this to us, we're like, I think I've missed it. I think, you know, I've, I've made these mistakes, I've, I've done these things, I'm too old, I'm too whatever it might be. Nothing is beyond God's sovereign hand, His power and His desire, not only to say, oh gosh, well, I, I wasn't expecting that, look what Adam's kind of done now, I guess we can kind of clean up the mess a little bit and still preserve some kind of goodness there. It's not even that. It's like, no, I knew he was going to do that. And even more because of that, and because of his willingness to follow my will in his life, I can use that for an even greater glory and goodness in his life. And we've covered some of that as we've gone through. That's why Romans 8, he works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. There's nothing beyond that. God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not an afterthought. This was the plan. Going back now to the nation Israel, which would stumble and fall, He'd preserve a remnant, but He'd use that very disobedience and rejection to then take the gospel to the Gentiles. As I said, all of us in the room are recipients of that. We say, praise God, thank you very much. But that is not the end of the story, and he's alluded to that. It doesn't end there. Jewish people stumbled and fell. Gentiles received grace through Christ. End of story. No, it's not the end of the story. Let's go on. Verse 13. It says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch 
um, an apostle to the Gentiles. So he's laying claim here not only to his Jewish heritage to speak, if you like, on behalf of the Jewish people, but also to speak as someone who God used undeniably to preach and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the known world. Entire regions came to faith through the proclamation of the gospel that the Apostle Paul made. So he's using his credentials to say, I I have some capacity to speak not just to the Jewish people because of my heritage, but the Gentiles because God's used me in incredible ways to bring the gospel to them that they might find faith in Jesus Christ. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, this is the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but it's the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast, fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Be an awesome wonder and reverence of God and his plans. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from that which is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? <sighs> Take a breath. All right, what, what is Paul trying to explain to us and to the Romans about God's plan? Remembering, he said, the Jewish people had stumbled in their disobedience. They'd missed the invitation of the gospel other than a remnant. God had used that to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, but that's not the end of the story. And he gives us this picture. It's a picture of an olive tree. And he describes Israel. He said, it's, it's a little bit like this. This, this is the picture to, for him to kind of explain to us what it is that God is doing in the unfolding of his plan. It's like a, an olive tree. Israel were the natural branches that were, were broken off. And the wild olive shoots, this is the Gentiles. Those who were far away from God have been grafted into this tree. Now, that's something that should cause us to wonder and think, he says, you know, be, be in awesome reverence of God. What, a, what a, a great God of mercy that would invite all of us in to his eternal plans and promises of salvation through the work of Christ. But he's saying as well, it comes with a warning, don't take for granted where you've come from and where you are. So he's not saying, here's what God has done. He's chopped the tree off and he's planted a new tree. He's gone a different direction. He's, he, that's his question. Has he forsaken Israel? saying, no, here's the picture. That's what we've got to grapple through if we really want to understand this story of salvation through Scripture. He's saying there's, there's this root of the tree. There's this foundation, the natural branches. Yes, they've been snapped off. And the wild ones have also now been added back in. Now, why is that image important? It's important for this reason, because it does two things. First of all, it doesn't collapse the church and Israel together. 
One of the first mistakes that people make, we read scriptures and we're like, well, there's whole movements of the church over the years that have said somehow we've got to just combine these two together. We take the old and maybe say, well, the new now, now we're the spiritual Israel, therefore we inherit all the same. We, we kind of get things mixed up as we bring these two together without any distinction. So the image is important. It does not collapse the church and Israel together, but also equally as important, it doesn't leave them separate. So we're also not in some um, theological space where there's now two separate people of God. There's a nation of Israel and then there's, there's us, the church, and somehow we're these separate entities. And in fact, that leads to some great theological error um, over the years called some, some sort of a dual covenant theory where you, know, you can get... There's two paths, really. That, that's not at all what Paul's saying. So don't at all ever think that that's what Paul is illustrating here. There's, there's, not two, there's the gospel. The whole of the last chapter is... That's his desire that all of us should be saved and the only vehicle and means of salvation is the gospel. So here is this picture. We have this, this olive tree. We're, we're not collapsed together, the church in Israel... And we're also not left as two separately distinct and unrelated entities. Rather, so far we've seen, this is the conclusion so far, there's a definite and distinctive union of the two, the church and Israel, in a clearly identified outworking of God's sovereign purpose. You say, thank you, well, what does that mean and how does it apply to us? We'll get there in just a moment. So let's continue on, though, in the passage, and then we'll come back to that. So there's the picture, and the picture comes with this prophetic promise. I want you to grab this, too. So read on, verse 25. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. Remember here, he's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking about the plans of God. He's saying, I've talked as a, a Jewish man, but I'm now talking as the apostle to the Gentiles. Unless you, being the Gentiles, become wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening, and that word hardening there in the ESV, uh, New King James, other translations translated as blindness. That's what, it's talking about a hardening of the eyes. It's literally talking about a blindness would be a better translation of that word. So partial hardening or a partial blindness has come upon Israel forever? Are they blind? No. He says, until, keyword, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then verse 26, it says, In this way all Israel will be saved, as it's written, the, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A partial blindness has come upon Israel. Not forever, but until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now let's just think that through a little bit and how that plays in particularly with the um, future unfolding of God's plan of salvation. The first question is this, when did a blindness come upon Israel? When was this moment? Well, we don't need to question that because Scripture reveals that if you've got your Bibles, keep your finger in Romans because we're coming back. Just come over to Luke 19, verse 41. I want us to grab this. I think it's a fascinating portion of Scripture. So Luke 19, 41, this is a passage where we've just seen the triumphal entry this moment in Jesus' ministry where he's publicly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. And verse 41, we've seen the triumphal entry, people are crying out, and he was um, accused because he wouldn't stop the shouts, and he says, 
to the, the religious leaders of the time. He says, I'll tell you the truth, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see the, the significance of this moment. And Luke 19, 41, it says, as he drew near and saw the city, this is Jesus, he wept over it, wept over the city. So he's gone through the city. It's like he's, he's passed through the city and he's standing up at some sort of a high vantage point. He sees the city, he weeps over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for your peace. This is the moment. This is the moment you were waiting for. The Messiah is here. He's just been publicly proclaimed as the one you were waiting. If only you had known on this day, he says, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. So where did this blindness come from? It comes from Jesus himself. He pronounces He says, there was this moment for them to recognize the day. If only you'd known. The Messiah publicly proclaimed, but you've missed the moment. And now there is a partial hardening. There is a partial blindness. Forever? No, Paul says in Romans, until the fullness of Gentiles come in. And that's the point he's making, that there was this definitive shift in the workings of God from um, prior to post. Prior to the blindness, now the blindness is there through their stumbling and disobedience. From this moment on, the gospel is preached and proclaimed to the Gentiles. Now, what's phenomenal, and this is probably a sermon for another day, and I hesitate to even unpack it a little bit, is the question of, well, how were the people, the, the Jewish people of the time, to know that this was the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord would come? Now, Matthew, he alludes to prophetic scriptures in Zechariah saying, well, the Messiah would come on a donkey. And there's over 400 uh, prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament that proclaim who Jesus would be and what he would look like as he came as the Messiah. But there's one in particular in Daniel chapter 9, and I'm not going to unpack the full details of it, but the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says to Daniel, he gives him this word. He says, from the moment, remembering the the, uh, the city of Jerusalem at this time, it had been ransacked. The people of God had been taken, including Daniel, to Babylon. And he, he's praying for the restoration of his, his homeland. And the Lord sends Gabriel, the, the angel Gabriel, to give him a prophetic word. And he says, from the moment of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the moment the Messiah comes will be exactly 70 weeks of years or 490 years. Now, what we can do historically is we can actually track back and trace from that moment the commandment was given unto the moment that Jesus came and publicly presented himself as Messiah. Now, remembering there was many moments in Jesus' ministry where the demons saw who he was and they proclaimed, you're the, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, and he commanded them to be silent. Many times in Jesus' ministry, he said, no, don't tell anyone. It's, it's not the moment. And there's one and only one moment in Jesus' ministry where not only does he allow it, but he orchestrates the whole thing. He says to his disciples, go and get the donkeys, I'm going to proclaim through. Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in doing this, and the people proclaim him to be the Messiah. He's publicly proclaimed. We just read before that those who would shut him down, he rebuked. He said, no, this is the moment. And if they didn't cry out, the stones themselves would cry out. There's this, this expectation, the Messiah is here. Now, what's phenomenal, phenomenal about that particular moment is if you trace it back, it fulfills the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, not just to the year, but to the day. 
to the very day that prophecy is fulfilled. That's why Jesus is saying, if only you'd known in this day. This is the day. The, the day literally was prophesied. Now that gives me such, such an incredible um, confidence in who he is and in the unfolding of his plans and purposes. He means what he says and he says what he means to the day. He fulfills the prophetic scriptures and utterances that pointed to who he was. So what, so what have we read here? We've read as, um, let's go back to Romans. As Paul has said to the Romans, he says to the Gentiles, I don't want you to be wise. Here is what is going to happen. There is a partial blindness that's come, come upon Israel, but there's also a moment. We saw the, the, the first, if you like, the beginning, Jesus himself saying, these things will be hidden from your, from your eyes. Whereas Paul is saying there's now a time of Gentiles, and when that time of Gentiles is fulfilled, all of a sudden there's an ushering in of the next fulfillment of the plans and purposes of God. That there will be a moment in God's prophetic timetable when there is a revival, if you like, in a national Israel that comes to faith. Now we could debate and argue, well, is it part of a great worldwide revival? Is that the catalyst? Is the catalyst perhaps the tribulation period that the Bible speaks of, and I'm definitely resisting the urge to jump into some eschatology this morning because we've got more than enough to think and wrestle through. We're not, we're not, we're not diving into the specifics of it other than to say Scripture makes it clear that there is, it's what Paul is saying, there is going to be this moment, just as there was a moment where to the day Jesus said these things are hidden from your eyes, there's a time of the Gentile, the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth, there is a moment in his prophetic timetable when we move back to seeing a national Israel come to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, what, what do we do with all that? Let's just pause for a few moments. Let me give you three reasons, and I understand, again, I apologize if you feel like you're in a seminary this morning and this is a little bit just too intense, but here's what I would hope that we would grab and the reason this chapter is important for us to grab a hold of and to understand what it is uh, that, that the Lord is unfolding in the timeline of human history. So point number one that hopefully will help us understand why this is important. And I've alluded to these things already, so very quickly. Number one, it unifies the soteriological storyline, the soteriological narrative. It unifies the story of salvation in human history. As I said, throughout church history, there's often been this problem from the early church fathers through even um, great figures of the faith like Martin Luther, and there's so much from the Reformation that's important for us to grab a hold of. One of the real negatives has been this setting up of Christianity as the antithesis of Judaism. There's this, this rigid dichotomy. These two are somehow completely separated or somehow they're completely amalgamated together. We've got to avoid that. There is this clear reality in Paul's picture. He's saying there's, there's a tree, and what good is a tree without a root? But what good is the, the root and the stump without the branches? There's this incredible linking together. And in the, the storyline of salvation of God, it's not so much about a person or a people group, as much as it is the common link is the promises of God. It's about His promises and His covenantal 
faithfulness in fulfilling that which is promised. So it unifies. There's, there's, there's not this need. I think so often as Christians, it's a very common thing. Like, well, what do we do with the Old Testament? Do we burn it? Do we throw it out? Do we, we, we don't quite know what to do. In fact, I had someone just last week, a very new Christian, just met the Lord. He's like, where do I start in reading the Scriptures? I did have a, a Bible teacher I used to listen to. He's like, whenever I got asked that question, I just directed them to Revelation. Because <laughs> if they can figure that out, then you know they've you know, got everything else under the hat. I, I don't direct people to Revelation. I said, like probably most of us would, start in the Gospels. Read about Jesus. And, and I think that is, that's what we've done going through Romans. We've, we've read about Jesus. We've read about the God. That's... that's a wonderful place to start. But don't stop there. We want to see Jesus in the light of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation and the unfolding plans of God in human history. The covenantal faithfulness that He is a God who means what He says and says what He means. Number two. So it unifies this storyline. It's all together. It broadens the perspective of God's redemptive purposes. See, sometimes, again, as we focus on the book of Romans, we think, well, Romans and the book, it's, it's all about how the individual gets saved. And that's great, and that's good. That's what the Reformation's given to us. That's wonderful. It is. It is all about that. And that's something we never want to undervalue or move away from. But we also want to see how the individual gets saved in the broader panorama of God's covenantal purposes. So it unifies the storyline, but it broadens this perspective as well of how God works in human history. And number three, I think it establishes and awakens an eschatological expectancy. I know there's more big words in there, but it, it gives us this assurance that God is outworking His plan. It's not just like, well, we kind of bumble our way through and, oh, there's Jesus and we start with Him and we focus on Him and then we just let all the other fuzzy details kind of fade away as well. This is, this, 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 there's something we can anchor into here. Not just about where salvation history has led us to, but where God is taking it to in the fullness of time. And as we think through that, as Paul has outlined here, there's this fascinating tension, and you can't deny it if you examine these passages of Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's this fascinating tension or irony that the church, this ingathering of believers, has become, Paul proclaims, the present hope of Yahweh's covenantal promises to Abraham. It's the first step. And yet the second step is that Israel's final restoration nationally becomes the future eschatological expectancy of the church. I'm going to say that again. Does that make sense? So there's this fascinating tension and irony. The church becomes the present hope of God or Yahweh's covenantal promises to Abraham. He's fulfilling them in this period, while Israel's final restoration or redemption becomes the future eschatological expectancy of the church. If you grab that tension, then you've got this wonderful panorama that brings together the redemptive purposes of God into one cohesive and glorious narrative. All right, how do we bring this together? Are we okay? Understand, as I said, I tried to warn us in advance that it was, it was a little more kind of think through. If you grab nothing else, let's finish off this passage in Romans 11. In fact, the worship team wants to come up and help us bring it all together. 
So he's, he's just said, um, picking up the, the theme in Romans 11, he's just talked about the, uh, the Gentiles not being wise, that a partial hardening has come. And he says this in verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they being the Jewish people are enemies for your sake, as in the Jewish people opposed the Christians at this particular time. He says, but they are beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they might also now receive mercy. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then verse 33, which we actually begun the whole series with, is this proclamation of wonder and praise that Paul gives as he brings this to a conclusion. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? But from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, he's waded through some intense theology, but this is where he lands. And I love this. He's like, here's what I see. He's like, I see as I look at this whole thing, the faithfulness of God in saving and giving mercy to a disobedient people. Verse 32, God's consigned all to disobedience. What's marked us throughout history? It's been the disobedience and the rebellion and the hard-heartedness of his people. What's marked his response all the way through human history? has been a God who's consigned all or allowed all so that he might punish? No. So that he might prove his righteousness in executing judgment? No. First and foremost, so that he would extend and show mercy. That he's a merciful God. That's what he loves. That's his heart. What's our response to that? He says, Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He ends in a proclamation of praise. He ends with wonder and worship. That's how we're going to end this morning. Can't think of a better way to end. So if you'd like to just put your Bibles aside. I want to pray for us, but I want us to stand. And if nothing else, I want us to see through scriptures this glorious, wondrous, see the fullness, see the majesty, see the beauty of God's redemptive purposes. His purpose and plan put in motion, the Bible says, before he laid the the foundations of the world there's no afterthoughts there there's no recalibrations oh we've missed it there well I guess we better see what we can do to fix that up but as we look at that to see the certainty to see the sufficiency to see the sovereignty this proclamation of a merciful God As we look not just back in history, as we look not just to the cross, but as we also 
look forward to the moment that he splits the sky and he returns again. Where Jude talks about, where he presents you and I and those who would believe in his name, presents us spotless with exceeding joy the presence of the eternal God. It's our destiny. So let me pray for us. And we're going to sing. I think we're going to sing. Yes. And then we'll just invite the Lord again just to do what he desires to do. So Father, this morning we thank you for this, this picture painted by the Apostle Paul. As he, in his own journey, has taken many twists and turns, as he comes with the wisdom wisdom of age, the wisdom of runs on the board, the wisdom of, of seeing you having, having done incredible things. He looks at his love for his own people. He looks at the power of the gospel being proclaimed. And he writes with such passion and purpose about the unfolding and unfailing sovereign purposes of God. This story of salvation that you would catch us up, a disobedient, a rebellious, a hard-hearted people. You'd catch us up not because of any work of our own, any way in which we've managed to make ourselves worthy of that which you offer, but you'd catch us up in your sovereign purposes because of the greatness of your mercy because of the depths of your love. And may we, as the Apostle Paul proclaims as he finishes Romans 11, in some way this morning, afresh and new, for the first time, for the hundred thousandth time, may we be caught up in some new and fresh way with wonder and with worship who you are and what you've done for us. Pray that in Jesus' name. All right, let's worship together and then we're just going to open up the ministry this morning.